again, yeah, we are in Ephesians. Uh, we're in Ephesians 2, and uh, this is another passage that I absolutely love and am excited about. So one thing about us, last week my wife and I celebrated, and, and our daughter celebrated, um, our Coonhound, our dog, George Jones. It was his birthday, so here I'm going to put up a picture. This is a picture of the birthday pup. It was a really awesome time. There's some more pictures in there if you want to see them. Look at that. He loves it. We did a pup cup. That's a thing. I didn't know that. Apparently, you can buy ice cream for dogs because it's new ways to waste your money. There's one more of him smiling, so you can see. Hey, look at him. He's the best. He's the best. So last year, just a few days before Christmas, um, we were excited because we decided we were going to get a dog. And I remember the time leading up to us getting him, we were researching what kind of dog did we want to get. And so Hannah and I would text each other, we would send each other pictures of dogs, and we talked about, well, what do we want to do? Um, do we want to get a dog, you know, maybe from a breeder, because I really like Bernie's Mountain Dogs, and she really likes all kinds of different breeds. And then we decided, no, 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 we're going to go to an animal shelter. We're going to just go find a dog. So I don't know if you've ever been to an animal shelter, animal shelter, I imagine you have. Um, it's a place that just rips your heart out every time you go in there. As soon as you go in, you walk past all these kittens, and they're meowing, and there's cats everywhere, and then you go through, and there's all these dogs, and they're all barking. And the whole time you're there, it's just, man, it just tugs at you. And you know what they call these pets? Rescue animals, right? Rescue animals. So we have our little rescue puppy, and we're excited to go in there, and we're walking dogs. And the thing about these shelters is they always try to steer you away from the puppies. They're like, no, 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 Don't you want to meet this eight-year-old dog? And it comes out, and it's kind of haggard, but it's happy, and it's happy to see you, and it's looking at you, and they tell you its, its name. Oh, this is Mocha. Isn't she sweet? Mocha's great. She loves Frisbees, and she loves to play. And if no one adopts her next Tuesday, we're going to have to put her down. And you're like, no, not Mocha. It's like it kills you because you don't want them to take this dog away. And so you end up, if you're like my wife, with 10,000 dogs. Fortunately, we, uh, we didn't go out with a bunch of animals. We only got one. Um, as soon as Hannah saw George, he ran up to her, and it was over from there. But I don't know. We, we were excited about this. We loved it. We became his, what they call for, forever family, which is super cheesy, but is what it is. He's our little rescue pup. And I realize this isn't the greatest transition in the world, but I think you and I, we all love good rescue stories. We do. We love good rescue stories. It's something about whenever we see a firefighter leave a burning building with children, we cheer. We do. When we see viral videos online of rescues, we get excited about it. I mean, there's been so many recently because of all the hurricanes and flooding. We see people on their roofs and they're coming. A rescuer is coming to save them. We think of different things like, uh, I remember seeing one of a deer that was stuck in a flood and there's someone running out to grab the deer from the flood I saw one just this week of a lady who fell on subway tracks as a train was coming around the corner and the entire crowd is waving at the, waving at the train saying, hey, stop, there's a lady. And the train stops literally within feet of her. It's crazy, but we love that. We love a good rescue story where there's people in a terrible fate who can't rescue themselves. They're doomed and there's a death sentence hanging over them per se, but here comes the Savior. Somebody's going to show up and somebody's going to rescue them. We love these kinds of stories. And I think the reason we do is because if we focus on the heart of God, because we're made in his image and likeness of God, then we would see that rescue is in his heart. And it's something that echoes in our own hearts, that we love this. We love a good rescue story. And that's really what the story of the Bible is. It's the greatest rescue story ever told. 
And so we realize that we are in this position and we may not even be aware of it, but there's a sentence of death hanging over us. We can't save ourselves and we need someone to come in and to do what we cannot do. And that is to rescue us and put us in our forever family. We often use the, the short word for this, saved, right? We talk about salvation like that. I got saved. And like many other Christian colloquialisms, it's a word that's more often uttered than understood. Do we know what it means to be saved? This word saved, it comes up twice in the passage that we just read, Ephesians 2 in the first 10 verses. But really, the entirety of the passage deals with this specific subject of being saved. In one sense, the word saved is really just a simple summary of the gospel message. You and I, we were dead in our sin. We were living in it. We were headed towards final judgment and God saves us. In another sense, we could mine the riches of this forever. There's so much here. It's one of the clearest, most expressive, and most loved descriptions of salvation in the New Testament. Ephesians 2 is. Generally, when we tell people we're saved, what we end up doing is we kind of talk about salvation in a past tense, right? No one walks around and says, I'm being saved, but theologically, we are. We kind of understand this idea of, oh, I've been saved. It's a past thing that happened. But in the New Testament, Paul uses this term saved in a much richer and fuller context. He talks about this idea of past, present, and future tenses in the same root word of salvation. So according to the author of Ephesians, we have been saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. There's a theologian, A.W. Pink, and he says it a lot clearer. He says it this way. In the New Testament, salvation is threefold in its scope, past, present, and future. And it's threefold in its character from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. Every believer has been saved from the penalty of sin, but we shall yet be saved from the very presence of sin. At our Lord's return, we shall be completely emancipated from the dominion and pollution of sin. I think it's helpful for us to understand that though we are positionally righteous before God in Christ, right? We've been saved. God's done something in us. He's saved us. He's changed us. We have been saved. We also still struggle with sin, right? We live in a world with pressing darkness. We do. It's not like you become a Christian and it's all sunshine and rainbows. We still deal with sin. We still have brokenness around us. And so we still struggle with sin because we're being made new and we're being made like Christ daily. We are being saved. And finally, we have this hope that as Christians, one day we'll be perfect like Jesus. We shall be saved. So we've been saved, we're being saved, we will be saved. I, I know this seems a little like, what's, what are you doing here? What's with the semantics of all this stuff? But it's really important we understand this because if we don't, the gospel kind of loses its power. It's like a marriage when you remember when you're young and you had that romance that was really fresh and it was, it was really exciting, but that moment doesn't sustain you for a lifetime, right? You can't, when you're 65 years old, be like, man, when you were 20, you were so good looking and now you're burping and you're gross. And I don't, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't sustain you that one moment for a lifetime. You have to keep the fire burning. You learn, you grow, you fall more deeply in love as your marriage grows. That's what we do with the gospel though. We think of salvation as a moment in time. And so we think of, okay, all right, cool, I get it. I did that. I did the Jesus thing. Now I'm just gonna try and be a good person and someday I'll be in glory with him. We don't see that God's still working in us, that the gospel power is still present for today. 
A lot of times, uh, Tim Keller, he said it beautifully. He said, we think of our faith as the ABCs, right? The gospel is the ABCs of our faith. That's what we teach our kids. Rather, it's actually the A to Z. It's the end-all, be-all of our faith. The gospel is everything. Again, think about it this way. We've been saved. So we put faith in Jesus, and then you and I, we are saved from the need to live a perfect life to gain God's approval. In Colossians, we read that our lives are now hidden with Christ and God. And what that means is, by faith, you have now trusted in Jesus as the one who perfectly obeyed God on your behalf. And so God sees Jesus' performance as your performance. And he accepts you because of Jesus. So we have been saved. But we're also being saved, right? We have gospel power applied to us daily. We see the language in the New Testament of being saved and describing that the gospel is still doing something. Yes, the gospel is good news about a past event. Jesus really did live. He really did die in a definite time in history to forgive us of our sins and to rescue us. But the gospel is also the good news about what God continues to do in us and through us. You see, Jesus was raised on the third day. He's alive. He is. And he's working now. He lives for us. And his spirit is living in us and working through us. So as we trust in him, as we depend on him to work in us, he enables us to live this new and better life right here, right now. So we're being saved. And lastly, we will be saved. One day, all will be made right. We, we got together today as we were kind of setting up and I decided to play bass, which was fun for me, but weird because I'm wearing like a face mic and so that's the whole thing. But we set up and we're talking and like everybody's just got, you know, Daniel's falling apart because he's getting older and like Catherine's like a new mom and she's like, you know, my kid is, this is going on and I'm tired and like Josh and just a whole mess, right? And what I think we end up doing is we kind of get so caught up in the day to day we get caught up with everything that's going on and what good news it is that one day all will be made right. You know, one day we don't get random nosebleeds, right? One day we can walk in glory. We love God because he first loved us. And he loved us by rescuing us and sending Jesus to satisfy his just wrath against us for our sin. So we have no need to fear some pending judgment coming to us. And not only do we not have to be afraid of future judgment if our faith is in Jesus, but catch this, We have no need to fear loss because Jesus is presently, we talked about this last week, he is at the right hand of the Father and he represents us who have faith in him and he is securing for us, he is securing for us an eternal hope and he is securing us until the end. He has all authority in heaven and on earth and that means the thing that matters the most, it can't be taken away from you, it can't. Nothing can happen to prevent us from inheriting it. So we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. And along every single step of salvation, we are being brought along by Jesus and we are being lovingly empowered by his Holy Spirit. In everyday life, when we speak of someone being saved, we're really just kind of saying two basic things. One, someone was in danger and unable to rescue themselves from a really terrible fate. And two, someone else rescued, redeemed, and delivered them. Sandra McCracken, if you've never heard of her, she's incredible, great musician, writes amazing stuff. She has a live album uh, called Under Lights and Wires. It's really, really good, and I recommend it to you. In it, she shares the story of two young boys who were in Missouri, and they were playing along um, some sandbag levees that were holding back the extreme flooding of the Mississippi River. 
Tragically, one day the levee broke and the boys found themselves in what was becoming quicksand. So rescue workers were looking, trying to find these kids, and when they finally found them, they only found the younger brother. And they said, little boy, where's your brother? And he says, I'm standing on his shoulders. The older brother had sacrificed his life to save his little brother. Just as this young boy needed saving, we too were once sinking in the sand of our sin. And it took our older brother, Jesus, to sacrifice himself so that we could be saved. And like the little boy, we are still in the sand of sin, but we're saved from the death it would cause. And one day, the rescue worker, Jesus, will come and pull us out completely. This is the basic sense of what the Bible means when it says that we're saved in Christ. So what of this salvation? Let's ask the question first and foremost, what are we saved from, right? Saved from what? We all come with these preconceived notions of what it means being saved. For me, I grew up here in Burke County in the South, and I had a very moral view of what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to be saved. I have a, I have a really good friend, a new friend of mine who's got a, he's got a brilliant mind, his name is James Walden. He's the pastor of Riverside Community Church in Columbia, South Carolina. And he recently wrote this amazing article about the need for more gospel-centered churches in the South. And he said this. He says, American Christianity has been aptly labeled by sociologists as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Tyler Jones has refined the label in application to Southern Christianity, referring to it as quaint moralism. If you're old South read traditional, this quaint moralism looks like avoiding stereotypical taboos like don't drink, don't smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do, right? We probably have all heard that. If you're new south, read more progressive, it's a bit more complicated. Tolerance, open-mindedness, authenticity, transparency, and, and suspension of judgment. These are the shared values of our culture, and we dutifully perform them in our own southern way. You see, we often lack awareness of what it truly means to be saved. And before we can understand and embrace our identity in Christ, we must first accept and embrace our identity apart from Christ. Right? Becoming a Christian is not merely accepting the truth about Jesus as our Savior. It's also accepting the truth about ourselves as needy sinners. Look back at Ephesians 2 with me. Let's look at the first three verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's not that we were just bad people who needed to learn how to act right, okay? Ephesians says that we were dead, we were dead people who needed to be brought to life. In Christ, it says that we're saved specifically from six different things. Sin, death, worldly living, Satan, and our old nature, as well as the wrath of God. Let's look at some of these things. First, in Christ, we're saved from sin and death. Sin and death. Death is first and foremost the penalty for sin, right? Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. Because of sin, death entered the world and spread to all. And it may be obvious, but death, what it does is it separates us from the source of life. 
But what is less obvious to us is that God is the source of life. So death, in a very real sense, is a separation from God, both spiritually and physically. In this life, death is the fundamental characteristic of the spiritual life of those who are not in Christ, of those who do not know Jesus. In this sense, every non-Christian is a dead man walking. They are separated from the life of God because of their trespasses and sin. Thankfully, though, thankfully, in Christ, we are saved from our sin and the consequences of death. Because Jesus died for us, each of us can live a new life as a new person with new desires for the things of God, free from the penalty and power of sin. Because Jesus rose, we live as those who are spiritually alive. And we will one day rise physically from death like Jesus to be with him and to be like him forever. The next thing we see is that we're saved from a pattern of worldly living. For just a moment, for those of you who are believers, consider what your life would look like had God not saved you. What patterns, what thoughts, what actions would your family, friends, and culture have that you would not have questioned without a new mind in Christ and a new authority in Scripture? I think for most people, a truthful, honest look at who they could have been is frightening. But for the Christian, it becomes more so as we understand the severity of all of our sin, not just the big sins. To fully appreciate our Savior, we have to first acknowledge our own sin. Remembering, as Paul wrote, right, in verse 2, that we walked in these ways following the course of this world. So imagine for a moment, physically, really, that if you were to travel, if you were to step outside your front door and just keep walking in the same direction every single day, how far away from your home you would get. Spiritually, the life of a non-Christian is like that. With our back towards God, and our face towards selfishness and sin, the sinner then would deeply walk into darkness, devastation, and death. That's what Paul calls the course of this world. And what that is really practically, honestly, it's the pursuit of power, of money, of companionship, of significance, of control, of beauty, and everything else instead of God and the things that he would have for you. And so what the Christian is, is one who repents, which literally means turning his back to sin and his face towards God and walking with Jesus as his new identity. So in Christ, we're saved from a worldly way of living and we're transformed to a holy way of living. In God's grace, what this does is it establishes a new pattern for generations to come as our children and our grandchildren are encouraged to follow in our proverbial footsteps with Jesus. Let's keep going. We see that in Christ, we're also saved from Satan. We are. Ephesians 2.2, 2, Paul spoke of the non-Christian walk according, walking according to the prince of the power of the air. So who is this spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience? Well, the phrase prince of the power of the air refers to Satan. And the power of the air is a shorthand way of referring to the spiritual realm in Paul's culture. Satan is the prince ruler, power, and authority of the dwelling place of demons. That's why in Luke 4, 6, when the devil tells Jesus he's gonna give him his authority, that's what he's talking about. Satan has authority over the spiritual forces that play out their diabolical schemes in and through humanity and the kingdoms of the world. And although the ruler of this world has been defeated, right? We saw that last week. 
He's been defeated. He's not surrendering without a struggle. And he will still make his powerful influence felt. Thankfully, we know that Jesus rules above Satan and demons and he has defeated their hold on us through his sinless substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection and his exaltation to the throne. He sits in heaven today where he rules over everyone and everything, including, yes, Satan and demons. And while Satan is ultimately defeated, he's still trying to war against us and against God. It's kind of like a foreign king who has lost the war but has not yet surrendered. Skirmishes continue as enemy soldiers and snipers continue their assault. But in Christ, we do not have to be defeated because Jesus' victory, his authority, it's our victory and our authority. We get into trouble when we forget this fact and instead we give Satan a foothold, inviting him to have authority in our lives. And we have to take this seriously. Ephesians gets real serious. Pretty soon we're going to be looking, before you know it, at the armor that we're to put on. Paul reminds us that, yes, we have an enemy that we face every day in ourselves. All we have to do is look in the mirror and see the ways in which we distract ourselves. We get angry easily. We get frustrated. But we have a real pressing enemy. We do. So in Christ, we're saved from all these things. But we see also we're saved from our old nature. Our old nature. Speaking of those not in Christ, Paul wrote of the spirit that is now at work in what he called the sons of disobedience. This phrase in Hebrew is uh, in nature. It's found in other places in the New Testament, like Mark 3 and Luke 10 and Acts 4. And what it does is it paints the idea of men and women whose lives are characterized by disobedience. This includes a rejection of the gospel, yes, but it's also just a general disregard for God and his will. Paul pointed out that such people are those, and we see this in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by what nature? Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So we all come from the same plight of an old nature. And this should move us towards compassion for those who are not in Christ. I think sometimes we get really frustrated with people who are still in the old nature, right? With people who are still in sin. We don't understand why people would act that way. We get disheartened and discouraged. I think sometimes we, we lack compassion for those who don't know Jesus. And I'll say it this way as an illustration. If you were to say your car broke down and you're like, you know what, I'm going to take the green way. I'm going to take the green line. And I don't know how this works. You get online, you find the bus route and you're like, all right, it's going to take me to Walmart. I'm going to get my groceries. If you got on there and you sat down and the next passenger that got on was a blind person with a cup of coffee and they were walking and they tripped over themselves and spilled their coffee all over you, how would you react? Would you get up and, and be like, what the heck? What's wrong with you? Look, look where you're going. You know what I mean? How would you, what would you say? You would probably have a lot of compassion because you would understand, oh, they're blind. They can't see. They didn't mean to do this. I think the same is true of those who are not in Christ, who are in the old nature. We've got to pray that God would open their eyes, that they would see the wrong that they're doing and that they would be made new. Let's not get mad at blind people. Let's have compassion. You see, our old way of life was in one sense unavoidable for us before Christ. And so for the, it's, it's the same case for those who are presently without Christ. It is who we were by nature. It was a condition or circumstance determined by our birth. Right? The Bible says we're born anything but good people with good hearts. It says that we're sinners by nature and choice. As sin is both a nature we inherit and a lifestyle that we choose. 
And because of this, we deserve justice, condemnation, and hell. But in Christ, we're saved from our old nature, which is dethroned from the center of our lives. And we're given a new nature that desires love for Jesus, love for others, love for the truth, and love for holiness. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, what Paul does is he contrasts our old nature with our new nature. He does it in this way. I've got a chart that will be helpful for us. He says this, In our old nature, we were separated from Christ. And with our new nature, we're united to Christ. In our old nature, we were dead. In our new nature, we're alive. In our old nature, we were disobedient. But in our new nature, we're obedient. In the old, we were ruled by spiritual evil. But in the new, we're sharing in Jesus' rule over spiritual evil. In the old, we were objects of God's wrath. But now, we're objects of God's affection. Our old nature, we had vague uncertainty about what sin even was, but our new nature brings specific awareness to what sin is. In our old nature, we were walking in sin. In our new nature, we're walking in good works. In the old, we were destined for hell, but now we are seated with Christ in heaven. If you're ever having a hard time believing this, believing the truths about your new identity in Christ, I think it'd be really helpful to write down this list and put it on a mirror Remind yourself first thing in the morning that you're saved from sin and death, that you're saved from worldly living, that you're saved from Satan, that you're saved from your old nature. You're a new creation in Christ. You have a new identity. So if we talk about this idea of what we're saved from, I think it's right and fitting to ask next, saved by who, right? Saved by whom? And what we don't need in this world is more politics, more spirituality, more morality, or religion. What we don't need is we don't need more sinners trying to act like a savior. We need a savior. We do. And the answer to the question of who saves is really simple. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That's what Coram Deo as a church is all about. Jesus and making much of him. We see three ideas in our text. Let's let's look at, at verses four through 10. It says this, but God being rich in mercy. I'm gonna read that again. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The theme of these verses is unmistakably clear. God saves us through Jesus as an act of mercy, love, and grace. The grace of God is a theme that runs throughout Ephesians, as is the love of God. And Paul's emphasis is that all of salvation, every bit of it, is a gift. And some of us would bristle and say that salvation by the lavish love and grace of God, that's too easy. We do this overtly with our words and our rejection of Jesus, or we do this inadvertently when we think that if we work hard enough, if we constantly strive to find our identity in our work, where we believe our sacrifice then needs to be added to Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. But the truth is that through salvation, that that this idea of salvation by grace, 
Yes, it seems simple. It's actually hard because it requires that we would humbly come empty-handed to God. We earn nothing. Jesus earns it all. We boast in nothing. Jesus gets all of our boasting. We don't save ourselves. Jesus alone saves us. Do you know the word Savior appears 24 times in the New Testament? Eight of these referring to God in general and 16 referring to Jesus in particular. Do you know Jesus' name means God saves? An angel declared that Jesus would be born to save his people from their sin. At the birth of Jesus, an angel also declared that a Savior had been born. Upon seeing the newborn baby Jesus, the old godly man, Simeon, who had been longing for the Savior's coming, held the baby Jesus in his arms and said, My eyes have seen your salvation. In addition to the word Savior, related words such as save and salvation, they appear frequently throughout the New Testament and not one single time do they refer to you. They don't. You see, they point to Jesus as both our God and Savior. Jesus alone is the only Savior. And apart from him, no one is saved. This is why Paul said that our salvation is only in Christ. And he says this no fewer than three times in our passage. So we see that we have been saved. We see what we've been saved specifically from We see who we're saved by. Finally, let's ask the question, saved for what? Right, what are we saved for? Once we become Christians, the natural question is, now what? Okay, now I'm a Christian, what now? What did God save me for? And what does God have for us to do? Our text says that God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. Each verb Paul used has with it has with attached to it. So catch this for a second. Every single verb Paul uses, he says that we're doing this with Jesus. You catch that? All of what God does in us happens with Christ through his resurrection. This is amazing. That We have to catch this. What God has accomplished in Christ, he has accomplished for us. Paul describes the glorious victory in which believers share as they are in Christ. So after establishing our victory in Christ, Paul gives us the reasons why God does this for us. Why does he do it? Well, verse seven tells us he desires to show the immeasurable riches of his grace that he has towards us. You see, our God, he is a wealthy father and he is rich in grace and he loves to lavish upon us the gift of grace. This inspires deep praise from us to the father for his mercy for all eternity. God loves to do this. Hannah gives me a lot of grief because I love to buy gifts too much. Um, I do. So I went to Hickory a a couple weeks ago and we knew we were getting our our foster daughter and we were really excited. Um, We were really eager for her to come. And I called Hannah and said, hey, um, I'm at Barnes & Noble and there's like this big 75% off toy sale. So I'm gonna get a few things. I came home with like three board games and like this really loud, obnoxious unicorn. All this stuff, because I just, I love to give our kid gifts. I do. I love to see her smile and dance and run around. And, it, and yesterday was hard for me because we went to the worst place to bring children, which is Walmart, because she asked for everything. And I wanted to say yes, but I also like eating, so I didn't. It's really hard because I want to give her all these good gifts, but our God 
wants to give us grace all the more. And unlike us, his bank account is never ending. He has plenty to pour out on us. Professor and commentator Frank Thalman, he, he points out this amazing truth. This is what he says. He says, in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, Paul's painting a bright portrait of God's grace that stands in dramatic contrast to the dark landscape of human sin. By giving believers life with Christ, raising them with Christ, and seating them with Christ in his place of victory, God has demonstrated the overwhelmingly merciful, loving, and gracious nature of his character. This demonstration of his character was not something that happened as a side effect of his gracious saving work, but it's the very purpose for which he did this work. He rescued those who are in Christ from the domination of the world, the devil and the flesh, so that he might demonstrate forever the overwhelming gracious nature of his character. So Paul, he's expounding on this concept of God's grace in verses 8 through 10. And he ends the whole section by talking about how we, we are God's workmanship and that we're saved for good works. Now listen, Paul's not suddenly making a switch from grace to works here. He's not suddenly saying, and now that you have this grace, earn it. That's not what he's saying at all. Rather, he meant that even our works are empowered and made possible by God's grace for us, in us, and through us. We are his workmanship. We are his work of art, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. Man-made religion, in its various forms, really all kind of works out the same. It does. It seeks to have human works entirely or at least partially involved in salvation. Here's what I mean. In Buddhism, ceasing desire saves you. In Confucianism, education, self-reflection, self-cultivation, and living a moral life save you. In Hinduism, detaching from your separated ego and making an effort to live in unity with the divine saves you. In Islam, living a life of good deeds saves you. In Orthodox Judaism, repentance, prayer, and working hard to obey the law save you. In New Ageism, gaining a new perspective through which you see how you're connected to all things as a divine oneness saves you. In Taoism, aligning yourself with the Tao to have peace and harmony saves you. And what nearly all religions and all spiritualities hold in common is the theme that if there is a savior, it's the person we see in the mirror every morning. But Christianity is also a religion of works, just not our works. We are only saved by the work of Jesus Christ. Only through faith in his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection can anyone be saved. Jesus saves us, which then results in our good works. And what Jesus often refers to as the fruit of his already accomplished work of salvation in us is our works. This is vastly different than the way that other world religions proclaim salvation. Our works don't justify us. Rather, our works, catch this, our works are an act of worship to a God who has already made us new. Being saved to a new life in Christ, it's meaningful, it's valuable, it's purposeful. The world is filled with sin and death And God's people are part of God's mission to see sinners saved and all things made new. Listen, what we do makes a difference. 
It, it makes a difference. It glorifies God. It's good for others and it brings us joy. You and I, because of Jesus, we should care about justice. We should care about the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, and the suffering because God cares for people and he's prescribed and prepared good works for us to walk in. These works include preaching the gospel, planting churches, feeding the hungry, visiting the imprisoned, praying for the sick, giving to the poor, teaching the Bible, comforting the broken, contending for justice, loving orphans, and so much more. They also include the normal, everyday stuff of life. They do. Jesus is now ascended back into heaven where he rules over all creation. There's a beautiful quote from theologian Abraham Kuyper. It says this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Therefore, and catch this, there's no such thing as secular and sacred. This last week, I, I use an app called Marco Polo. If you don't know what it is, that's fine. It's basically a way to do video chat where you record a message and send it, and then they record a message and respond back. And we have this thread, me and a bunch of guys from college. And a lot of the guys I graduated from Bible college with are not in full-time paid ministry. They're all doing different things. One guy's a carpenter, one guy's a high school teacher, and one guy's driving a truck for a living. And we're all talking about deep theological things and, and what's going on with our lives. And I remember one guy was in his classroom and he responded and said, hey guys, just here at my secular job. And then another guy made the same joke when he was walking around hanging drywall. And I corrected him. I said, no, 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 you're not. You were at your sacred job imaging the gospel in what you do. If you think that teaching and, and sharing with children and shaping their minds doesn't image the creator, you're wrong. If you think that hanging drywall, swinging a hammer doesn't image Jesus who actually was a carpenter before he walked in ministry, images God, you're wrong. You see, anything and everything we do in Christ, for Christ and like Christ is a sacred work. So that means whether you're filling a prescription if you're kind of working with kids, if you're answering the phone, if you're hanging drywall or fixing machines, it doesn't matter. It means that even the most menial and mundane tasks of life, what it is, is they're infused with meaning. In Christ, they become the good works that God has prepared for us. Your life, your work, your job has purpose, has meaning, has richness. Whether you're changing diapers or you're pouring someone a drink, it doesn't matter. All of those things are good. It's not that, oh man, you know, if I really want to take God seriously, then I got to do what Billy's doing. I got to be behind a pulpit somewhere. I got to plug in and be paid to do ministry. We are all ministers. We are all doing the works that God has prepared for us. We are all living in the sacred we see this in Jesus' own life, right? The second member of the Trinity, what did he do? Again, he was a carpenter. He was. In closing, Martin Luther provides, man, just plain sense insight about how in Christ our good works are not those merely done in the church, but they're also those done when we wash dishes in the kitchen, when we fold our laundry, we rake our leaves, and we change our kids' diapers. They are. This is an epic quote, and it's long, and it's true to Martin Luther, who is really brash, so enjoy it. He says this, Now observe that which the clever harlot, our natural reason, which the pagans followed in trying to be most clever, takes a look at married life. She turns up her nose and says, Alas, must I rock the baby 
wash its diapers, make its bed, smell its stench, stay up nights with it, take care of it when it cries, heal its rashes and sores, and on top of all of that, care for my wife, provide for her, labor at my trade, take care of this and take care of that, do this and do that, endure this and endure that, and whatever else of bitterness and drudgery married life involves. What should I make such a prisoner of myself? Oh, you poor wretched fellow, have you taken a wife? Fie, fie upon such wretchedness and bitterness. It is better to remain free and lead a peaceful, carefree life. I will become a priest or a nun and compel my children to do likewise. What then does Christian faith say to this? It opens its eyes looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties in the Spirit and is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval as with the costliest gold and jewels. It says, O God, because I am certain that thou hast created me as a man and hast from my body begotten this child, I also know for a certainty that it meets with thy perfect pleasure. I confess to thee that I am not worthy to rock the little babe, or wash its diapers, or to be entrusted with the care of the child and its mother? How is it that I, without any merit, have come to this distinction of being certain that I am serving thy creature in thy most precious will? Oh, how gladly will I do so, though the duty should be even more insignificant and despised. Neither frost nor heat, neither drudgery nor labor will distress or dissuade me, for I am certain that it is thus pleasing in thy sight." It's beautiful. Everything that you do matters. It does. You are saved by Jesus to glorify God through the good works he's prepared for you. Infuse each moment of your day with the grace that is shown to you in Christ. There's nothing, nothing that is more powerful in this world than a Christian rightly understanding the grace of God and applying that grace to all facets of life. By doing so, we show Jesus to our spouses, our children, our friends, our families, our co-workers, even our enemies, that many would be saved. So would you, this afternoon, remember the God of your salvation? Would your heart, your mind, your soul be stirred to have greater affection for him? And would you see the good works that he's called you to? Whatever that may be, whatever nine to five you clock into, whatever child you care for, whatever thing it is that you set your mind to, would you do it diligently for Jesus? And would you see all the good things that we can do together as a body? That we can, yes, love schools like Hillcrest. We can love and serve people who desperately need the hope of the gospel. And we can do all of this because we have been saved. And we are saved to display the goodness and the good works of Jesus.